Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. If you read the news or even occasionally glance at social media, you've no doubt heard a ton about artificial intelligence. And depending on the source, it usually goes one of two ways. AI is either the end of human civilization as we know it, or it's a shortcut to utopia. I am not an AI expert. And I have no idea which of those two scenarios is nearer the truth. But what's interesting about the AI discourse is how polarized it is and how it gets wrapped up in our general fears about the present and the future. We're in a period of rapid technological growth and political disruption. And there are many reasons to worry about the course we're on. But how much worry is warranted? And at what point does worry careen into panic? I'm Sean Illing, and this is The Gray Area. Today's guest is Tyler Austin Harper. He's an assistant professor of environmental studies at Bates College and the author of a fascinating essay in the New York Times. The piece was titled, The 100-Year Extinction is Back, Right on Schedule. And it draws some helpful parallels between the existential anxieties today and some of the anxieties of the past, most notably in the 1920s and 30s, when people were rightly terrified about machine technology and nuclear weapons. Tyler is very smart and steeped in the history of extinction panics. So I invited him on the show to talk about what's old and new about this moment and what lessons we can draw from the past. Tyler Austin Harper, welcome to the show. Thank you. I have to start by asking how you got interested in the history of extinction panics. I absolutely love it, but it's a hell of a niche. So how'd that happen? Yeah, I guess I've always been pretty fascinated by extinction, sort of worst case scenarios, end of the world. I grew up um, in central Pennsylvania, right by Three Mile Island. Uh, and so I grew up hearing my sort of family stories of the partial meltdown and sort of the apocalyptic panic. Um, and my grandparents were from West Virginia and they were kind of hardy Appalachian stock and they refused to leave. And so uh, my mom and you know her siblings have all these great stories of watching the neighbors and their cars loaded to the hilt fleeing uh, Three Mile Island. Um, But I got really interested in, you know, what drives fear or what drives fear about the end of the world? Why do some people panic about it and why do others not? I think a good place to kick this off is to talk a little bit about 
Silicon Valley and tech culture at this moment? You know, when you track the current discourse around existential risk and the future of humanity, all that kind of thing, what jumps out to you as someone steeped in the history of this kind of thing? Yeah, so um, there's a in really influential movement, uh, sort of philosophical movement called long-termism. And this has gotten a lot of traction in Silicon Valley in particular. And so long-termists believe that the ultimate moral imperative is to secure a kind of utopian future. And for that reason, that this sort of um, ultimate evil would be human extinction. A lot of the research and thinking around long-termism comes out of a few think tanks at Oxford and Cambridge. But those think tanks are are um, very heavily funded by people in Silicon Valley. So Dustin Muscovitz of Facebook, Elon Musk, um, John Talon, uh, formerly of Skype, pumped tons of money into these institutes. So, you know, there's a lot of cross-pollination between this philosophical movement and the sort of Silicon Valley tech set. I mean, long-termism is, is one of those things, you know, superficially, at least, it seems obvious and almost banal, right? Like, of course, we have some moral considerations for future people, and we should take those seriously. But boy, it can take in too far, Kareen, into some pretty strange conclusions that basically just blot out the present and any suffering that might be done now in service to, you know, the people of 100 years or 200 years from now. And that's, anyway, it's a weird space with a lot of worthwhile ideas and a whole lot of really bad shit ideas. So the core premise of long-termism starts from a really actually good insight, which is that we don't make moral distinctions between people who are far away from us in space. Um, we don't assume that they're less worthy of a dignified life, right? So if you are in Mississippi, I am in Maine, the fact that you're far away from me doesn't entail you to any less rights. The long-termists want to say that same consideration should apply to time, right? That if there's no reason someone far away from me in space should be less worthy of my concern, that applies to time too. That's a pretty good idea in a lot of ways, right? You can think about something like climate change, where the question of what do we owe future generations is a really important one. Um, but at the same time, if you take that to an extreme or to an extreme logical conclusion, it, it as you point out, gets really dark. So a lot of long-termists talk about what they call the um, astronomical future value value of the universe, the sense that the universe might be able to host trillions of people if we colonize the solar system or if we have digital minds, right? If we can find a way to upload minds to computers, we could have potentially trillions of future humans. And so long-termists believe that there's not simply an imperative in general to think about the future, but that there's an imperative to ensure that those trillions of future minds are born. Yeah, I think climate change obviously occupies a good bit of the bandwidth in these conversations about existential risk and threats and that sort of thing. Among tech people, obviously, AI is sort of <laughs> the topic de jour at the moment. And in terms of just the discourse you see about AI and the level of risk and concern and all that, what do you make of it? So Silicon Valley is really in the grip of kind of a science fiction ideology, which is not to say that I don't think um, there are real risks from AI, but it is to say that a lot of the ways that Silicon Valley tends to think about those risks come through science fiction, come through stuff like The Matrix and the concern about sort of the rise of a totalitarian AI system, or even that we're potentially already living in a simulation. I think something else that's really important to understand about Silicon Valley AI 
high in existential risk is what actually an existential risk means. According to scholars and, and experts, an existential risk doesn't only mean something that could cause human extinction. They define existential risk as something that could cause human extinction or that could prevent our species from achieving its its fullest potential. So something, for example, that would prevent us from colonizing outer space or creating digital minds or expanding to a cosmic civilization, that's an existential risk from the point of view of people who study this and also from the point of view of a lot of people in Silicon Valley. So it's important to be careful that when you hear people in Silicon Valley say AI is an existential risk, that doesn't necessarily mean that they think it could cause human extinction. Sometimes it does. But it could also mean that they worry about our human potential being curtailed in some way. And that gets in wacky territory really quickly. Is colonizing space, colonizing Mars, is that the kookiest idea, in your opinion, currently floating around Silicon Valley? No, no, not at all. Um, you know, there's a lot of kind of techno-hedonism that's baked into sort of long-termism and the current Silicon Valley worldview. So actually, the space colonization stuff is pretty tame. Um, there's, uh, you know, the idea that we're all going to upload our minds to computers and exist in a kind of digital pleasure paradise. People often talk about the possibility of sort of having implants in our brains that can trip our pleasure centers on demand so we could have basically sort of 24-7 orgasms all the time, you know? Uh, so no, yeah, dude, the space stuff is, yeah, that is on the tame end of the spectrum in terms of the ideas percolating. Wow. 24-hour orgasms. That's, yeah, I don't know. That's a lot, Tyler. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I'm here for the hedonism. Yeah, but. Yeah, yeah. Sounds exhausting. <laughs> there is a term you use in your recent New York Times piece. The term is polycrisis. What does that mean? Yeah, so polycrisis is a term some people like Adam Tooze and, and economists and historians use to describe our present moment where we have multiple independent crises, things like climate change, global inequality, pandemics like COVID-19, even changes brought by AI. And those independent crises are getting lacquered on top of one another. And the combined effects make it more difficult to solve each of them independently. The problem of climate change makes it more difficult to solve global inequality. The problem of global inequality is exacerbated by AI. So the concept of a polycrisis is that we have these independent crises that have cascading effects and that paradoxically make it more difficult to solve any one of them. So in other words, everything is on fire. Everything is on fire, yeah. <laughs> you know, one of the interesting things about the AI discourse is it's all or nothing quality. AI will either destroy humanity or create utopia. There doesn't seem to be much space for anything in between. Does that kind of polarization surprise you at all? Or is that sort of par for the course with these kind of things? I think it's par for the course. There are people in Silicon Valley who uh, don't have 401ks because they believe that either we're going to have a digital paradise um, of universal basic income in which capitalism will dissolve into some kind of luxury communism or uh, we'll all be dead in four years. So why save for the future? I mean, you see this in climate change discourse too, right? Where people either imagine sort of on the climate denialist set that everything is going to be fine or they imagine that we're going to be living in a 
future hellscape of an uninhabitable Earth. And neither of those extremes are necessarily the most likely. What's mo- the most likely is some kind of middle ground where we have life like we have it now, except worse in every way, but something short of full-scale apocalypse. And I think the AI discourse is similar, where it is this sort of zero-sum game, or either we will have a paradise of techno-utopia and digital hedonism, or we will live as slaves under our robot overlords. You mentioned Silicon Valley guys not doing 401ks or just abandoning any pretense of saving for retirement. Mm-hmm. Is that really a thing? I mean, is there a substantial number of people in in the Valley who who really think retirement savings is a, is a fool's errand because we're not going to be around? Yeah, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's it's not an uncommon attitude. I've been talking to a lot of people that work in tech, and that attitude is pretty common. I, I wouldn't be able to put a number on the percentage, but it is not an outlandish view radically outside of the mainstream. Um, and and in fact, Elon Musk uh, has even joked about it. There was, you know, someone tweeted, I think it was OpenAI. They're like, why does OpenAI have a 401k? And then it went super viral. And then Elon Musk tweeted a laughing, crying emoji. Um, it's definitely a, an idea that gets some lip service in, in the Bay Area for sure. So you're talking to a lot of people in that world right now? Yeah. 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 What has surprised you? I mean, what, what, what are the sorts of things you're hearing that you didn't expect to hear? I think the split between the higher ups and the sort of regular working folks in tech has been really interesting. It tends to be, from what I can tell and from the people I've talked to, that the really whacked out narratives of, you know, digital minds and existential risk and panicking about, you know, chat GPT leading to a Skynet takeover, um, it tends to be driven more by the folks at the top. There are plenty of working stiffs who clock in and out at Google that, you know, are just collecting their paycheck and their, you know, their good benefits and aren't all that fussed about, you know, the hubba blue. Um, But that has been one thing that's been really interesting. And then the 401k stuff and just the way in which these concerns shape real world decisions has been interesting to me, right? I mean, to use OpenAI as an example, when they briefly ousted uh, Sam Altman, um, it was because of um, an internal kerfluffle over ChatGPT progressing too rapidly. And some people on the board thought it could put the train on the track to human extinction. And one of the things they were worried about was their system apparently had demonstrated an ability to do grade school math. And they were like, oh, this is how it starts, right? It's doing two plus two equals four, and this is how you get Skynet. Right, right, right. I mean, even Musk, Elon Musk saw buying Twitter as about the future of civilization and protecting humanity and the idea that maybe one day Twitter might be a the social media platform for our digital minds. And his commitment to it, even as he's doing things that tank its value, is really ideological and it's it's predicated on some of this crazy long-termist big tech ideology some of these people man (laughs) did you know this guy brian johnson yeah 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 there was this clip of him i don't know if you saw it going viral where he's talking about how we're gen zero yeah and we're, we're gonna wipe the slate clean and all human customs and norms and traditions and beliefs and values are now severed or soon to be severed and we're gonna start out with a brand new blank slate and evolve into whatever post-human species we're supposed to be that is absolutely crazy but there's no doubt he's not the only one in that world who thinks like that, right? No, my um, good friend just wrote a great piece called Lifestyle Fascism for Jacobin, and it was about him <laughs> and this other guy, also ironically named Brian Johnson. The idea of lifestyle fascism is that we have these right-wing wellness guys who are sort of 
tech bros, but that merged this sort of cosmic vision of the future of humanity with the sense that the self is this project of discovery and that we're going to use technology to push boundaries and live forever. So it is this weird melding of a future of community of digital minds with a really sort of bizarre self-help program. (sighs) What a weird world we've made for ourselves. (laughs) Yeah, man. When we get back from the break, Tyler tells us about extinction panics of the past and how they relate to the current one. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. What makes an extinction panic a panic? Extinction panics are usually in response to new scientific developments that seem to come on suddenly, rapid changes in technology, um, geopolitical crisis, for example, uh, when it feels like everything is happening too fast all at once, right? And then you have this sort of collective and cultural sense of vertigo, right? That we don't know where things go from here. Everything seems in flux and dangerous and the risks are stacking up. I I compare extinction panics to moral panics. And one of the defining features of a moral panic for sociologists is that it's not necessarily based on nothing, right? It's not always the case that a moral panic has no basis in reality, but rather it's blowing up a kernel of reasonableness into a sort of a five-alarm fire. And that's how I view our present moment. I think I'm very concerned about climate change. I'm concerned about AI a little differently than the Silicon Valley folks, but I'm concerned about it. But it does seem that we are blowing up super reasonable concerns into a panic that doesn't really help us solve them, and that doesn't really give us much purchase on what the future is going to be like. For something to qualify as an extinction panic, does it have to be animated by a kind of fatalism? Like, does it have to be animated by the belief that it's already written, that we're already cooked 
Yeah, absolutely, right? There's a kind of um, tragic fatalism or pessimism that I think that defines an extinction panic, where there is a sense that there's nothing we can do. This is already baked in. It's already foretold. And you see this a lot in AI discourse, particularly with the sort of doomer set within AI discourse, where a lot of people believe that the train is already too far down the tracks. There's nothing we can do. Um, So yeah, there is a fatalism to it for sure. There's a pessimism. There's a sense that we're totally impotent. We can't do anything. Um, And, you know, that's not good. We had a major extinction panic roughly 100 years ago. And there are a lot of similarities with the present moment and lots of both new and repurposed fears. Tell me about that. Right after the end of World War I, um, we entered another period of similar panic. We tend to think of World War II and the end of uh, World War II with the dropping of two atomic bombs and the ushering in of the nuclear age. We tend to think of that as the moment when humanity became worried that it could cause its own destruction. Those fears happen much earlier, and even fears of, of nuclear warfare or explosives so powerful they could uh, usher in human extinction. That was already percolating in the 1920s. Winston Churchill wrote a a little essay called Shall We All Commit Suicide um, that predicted bombs the size of an orange that could lay waste to cities. And these weren't fringe views. The president of Harvard at the time um, blurbed that essay Churchill wrote uh, and called it something all Americans need to read. There was a pervasive sense, particularly among the elites, that the Second World War might be the last war humanity fights. But, you know, even concerns about a machine age, the replacement of human beings by machines, the automation of labor, those those appear in the 20s, too. In their defense, the people panicking in the 20s don't look that crazy in retrospect, given what happened in the following two decades, right? It was absolutely it was pretty, yeah. pretty grim there. You know, I think that's one of the really important pieces of um, what I'm trying to get at is that panics are never helpful. It doesn't mean that the fears aren't grounded in real risks or real potential developments that could be disastrous. Obviously, a lot of things in the 1920s were right, but a lot was wrong too. You know, H.G. Wells, the great science fiction novelist who in his own day was actually more famous as a political writer, um, famously said on my tombstone, you should put, I told you so, you damned fools. And he thought as soon as we had nuclear weapons, he thought, we'd be extinct within a few years. And yet we've survived eight decades with nuclear weapons. We've never used them since 1945. That's a remarkable accomplishment. And it's one of the reasons why I'm really resistant to this notion that we have an accurate sense of what's coming down the pipeline or that we have an accurate sense of what humanity is capable of. Um, Because I don't think many would have predicted that we could semi-responsibly have nuclear weapons without another nuclear war. Well, apparently we owe a special debt to the Brits for extinction thinking, and apparently they also got into this after Darwin. What was it about Darwin's theories that sort of gave birth to this kind of thinking, long-termism or existential risk or thinking strategically about the future of the species? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, The British have really long been obsessed with human extinction since the early 19th century. But what was crucial about Darwin? So in the early 19th century, a lot of theories of geology and paleontology were predicated on what was called catastrophism. And that was the idea that extinction is caused by large geological upheavals that could snuff out, you know, a species at a blow. Darwin comes on the scene and says, that's not what extinction events are like at all. Extinction's not this exceptional 
catastrophe. It's a slow grinding process that happens over long stretches of time from environmental change, competition between species, etc. Whereas early discourse around extinction said it was catastrophic, Darwin said extinction's mundane and it's a long-term risk. And so people after Darwin see that and say, okay, if the risk isn't super volcanoes and these giant geological upheavals, but it's environmental change, interspecies competition, these slower moving risks, that's something we can prevent and prepare for in advance. And so in the late 19th century after Darwin, you start seeing people who are thinking about managing populations for maximal fitness, like eugenicists were some of the earliest people concerned about existential risk and, and trying to you know prevent extinction from population gerrymandering and so on, right? Yeah. And so it's Darwin's idea that you know extinction is something that takes a long time and that we can kind of predict in advance that really supercharged a lot of extinction discourse in England and elsewhere. You mentioned H.G. Wells already. When did sci-fi literature enter the extinction check? I mean, do you think of sci-fi as, as a principal driver of extinction anxieties, both today and over the last century or so? Yeah, absolutely. Before 1945, not all, but a huge percentage of thinking about human extinction, writing about human extinction, comes in science fiction. Um, in the English language, some of the early stuff uh, comes in the early 19th century. Lord Byron wrote a poem called Darkness about an extinction event. But H.G. Wells um, wrote this uh, novel famously called The Time Machine that is about a man who travels to the far future and expects a utopia, but instead finds humanity is extinct. But then later in in the 20s, 30s, 40s, Wells doesn't get necessarily more optimistic, but he begins to think that extinction is something that maybe we could work to prevent. So he wrote a book called Things to Come that was he made into a movie that he wrote the screenplay for in, I think, 1935 or so. And there's this great scene at the end of that film uh, where these two characters are standing before the first rocket ship ever launched into space. And one of them says, it's the universe or nothingness, which shall it be, right? So either we'll conquer the star or will go extinct. And so you really do see this shift, and H.G. Wells is a huge part of it. Yeah. You do see this shift toward thinking of extinction as a risk that we can mitigate through technological and political ingenuity. Speaking of nothingness, you wrote that something we're seeing now, which is something we've seen before, is this belief that the real threat posed by human extinction is nihilism. The idea that to go extinct is to have meant nothing cosmically. Yeah, absolutely. And that's at the core of long-termism, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, this sense that it is the universe or nothingness, that humanity's meaning depends on our immortality. And so they start from this almost Nietzschean view of, of the universe that there's no meaning, uh, life means nothing. But their sort of twist is that they say, but we can install meaning in the universe if we make ourselves permanent, right? So if we achieve digital immortality, if we colonize the cosmos, we can put meaning into what was previous a godless vacuum, right? And we can even become kinds of gods ourselves. Um, so the question of nihilism and overcoming nihilism through technology and through digital immortality is shot through uh, particularly contemporary extinction discourse. I think we've gone six or seven episodes without a Nietzsche reference. So God bless you. <laughs> Finally, I was, Yeah, I'm always good for one. I was getting concerned. Um, there does seem to be something deeply religious about this, right? I mean, religious people have always been obsessed over the end of the world and, and our place in the cosmos and that whole thing. 
And this strikes me as a secular analog to that. You know, people have been telling tales about the end of the world for as long as there have been human beings. You do see a shift in the late 18th, early 19th century to the first sort of naturalistic, non-religious imaginations of human extinction. By naturalistic, I mean human extinction not from a divine cause, but from a natural event or from technology. And yet, even as that conversation's become secular, there's all sorts of sort of religious holdovers that are suffused throughout this discourse. And I do think there's a way that long-termism has become become a kind of secular religion. I mean, the stakes are as large um, in their telling as stakes in something like the Bible, right? Both are dreaming of uh, a cosmic afterlife of, of immortality and paradise and great things, right? And there is this sense of, of regaining the garden and, and creating a paradise that I think is deeply embedded in Silicon Valley. And also the alternatives of, of damnation and hell, extinction or slavery from AI overlords. So there's a lot of religious resonances for sure. There's there's also something pretty conservative in a particular way about this, right? Not conservative in the flat tax sense, but yeah, yeah. conservative in the classical sense in that a lot of this really is grounded in a pretty grim view of human nature. You know, humans are violent, selfish, brutish creatures, and that's part of the reason why we're going to sort of like unravel or kill off ourselves or bumble our way into nothingness and extinction. Yeah, absolutely. There's something really Hobbesian to extinction panics, extinction discourse, the sense that um, we are selfish, we are self-absorbed or violent. Um, if there's not a strong state, uh, we'll indulge in barbarism. And you see this across the board. You see this with AI extinction panics, right, where a lot of people argue we're too selfish not to develop dangerous AI and that we'll inevitably do it because we're greedy and violent. But you also see in climate discourse, I, I like to joke that um, a lot of climate change literature and film and sort of apocalyptic imaginings of climate change, it's kind of right-wing survivalism. And by that, I don't mean that we shouldn't worry about climate change. We absolutely should. But I do mean that there are uncanny parallels. You know, a lot of environmentalists imagine the future as one of civil war and resource struggles, and we're all living in our gated compounds and communities, and there's, you know, roving hordes of people being violent. So there's something conservative on both sides of, of the aisle, to the left environmentalist vision to the right techno-utopian vision. On the left there with the climate, is it the idea that almost like a kind of accelerationism, right? Where like we, we, we de humans deserve to go extinct, right? Because of, of yeah. how badly we've, you know, raped the planet, that kind of thing. Is that what you mean? I mean that. I also mean even people who don't believe that do have this very dark vision of human nature. But there is also another set within environmentalist and some animal rights discourse that I've referred to as the new misanthropy. And, and the idea being that we deserve to go extinct. We've been terrible stewards of the planet. That's one of the things that concerns me. And you see that new misanthropy actually on the AI side of the ledger and the climate side yeah. of the ledger, right? Because yeah. the climate people, you know, think the human species is a parasite. And then the AI people people often talk about post-humanity. We need to create a future of digital minds and that the human species is old-fashioned. So there's a kind of loathing of the, the flesh and blood sort of meat space human there too. <laughs> yeah, I do admit to having to constantly fend off some of those kind of Hobbesian <laughs> visions of like a, you know, a, a dark, grim, yeah, yeah, brutish too. human nature. I feel the same way. I often fall prey to that temptation too. And it's clearly not entirely off base. No. 
No. Which why it's an enduring ethos. But on the other hand, like I said, when I look at history and when I look at particularly the history of nuclear weapons use, yeah. you know, any Hobbesian would have said we would have blown ourselves up in five years and we haven't. And so I think we have to balance a thorough going reasonable pessimism with also the sense that, you know, we've navigated challenges that I think a lot of people in the 40s or 50s wouldn't have predicted that we'd navigate. Another point you make is that extinction panics are almost always elite panics. Why is that the case? Yeah, you know, I think they tend to reflect um, the social anxieties of elite folks who are worried about changing positions in society, right? And that the future might not be one catered to them. So, I mean, if you look at something like climate change, which again, I, I can't emphasize enough, I take really seriously, but it's hard to avoid noticing that for a certain kind of person, the panic of climate change is that I'm not going to be able to live in my suburban home with my two cars and, you know, my nice house and my vacations, right? And so it is kind of a middle and upper class anxiety often about, you know, changing fortunes and that, uh, you know, they're not going to have this luxurious lifestyle they've enjoyed thus far, even as it is the global poor that are the primary victims of climate change. And there's something similar with AI discourse. Meanwhile, the, the people who are most impacted by AI are going to be the poor people put out of work whose jobs are automated. Yeah, it is elites that tend to shape the discourse. And that's the language I would use, shaping, right? Because it's not that there's no basis in reality to these concerns, but the narrative that forms around them tends to be one formed by elites. Do you think that's still true in the digital age or as true as it once was where you know, the internet has made it incredibly easy for all of us to sink into black holes of doom and conspiracy and that sort of thing. I feel like there's plenty of panic coming from everyone now, from top to bottom. No, no. I, and that's why I would emphasize the question I'm asking is who's doing the talking and who is shaping how we're imagining the future, right? It is not that elites are the only people who are worried about human extinction. That's patently not true. But it is the case that even as these concerns are pretty well distributed, right? I mean, if you look at recent polling about fears of nuclear war, that's bipartisan and pretty high. There's plenty of climate anxiety all across the class strata. But it tends to be the wealthy, bourgeois, middle-class, coastal elite that is shaping the concerns, right? And that is dictating how that narrative looks. After one more short break, how should we think about the actual threat that AI poses? Stay with us. As we sort of wind our way to the end here, I do want to get a sense of what you're actually worried about mm -hmm. um, and what you think is worth worrying about. And we've talked a whole bunch about AI, and, and I get the sense, and tell me if I'm wrong, that you're fairly skeptical about this idea that super intelligent AI is going to turn into Skynet and, mm -hmm. and wipe us out, right? You're not worried about that? You think that's a misguided anxiety? I tend to think it's misguided. Um, I'm not an engineer or a machine learning guy, but I, I know enough of them. And I think quietly a lot would say that that's 
pretty overblown. I'm skeptical specifically of the idea that large language models like ChatGPT, that if you just scale them up and scale them up, suddenly they're going to secrete super intelligence by some witchcraft, you know? I agree with the claim that were we to create super intelligence, that would absolutely be an existential risk for the species. I think creating a intelligence far superior to humanity would be a real risk. I'm just skeptical that we're on the road there anytime soon, particularly with, with chat models. Um, what I worry about with AI is um, risks from, you know, what you might call dumb AI. For example, um, if a country like North Korea hooks up their nuclear weapon system to AI and it makes a mistake, I think those kinds of things are real concerns. I also think there's a real risk, and this is one of the things that the long-termists have pointed to that I think is really reasonable. I do think there's a risk of novel biopathogens. The idea that somebody with AI, chat GPT, um, an advanced version, could jailbreak it and get it to cook up a recipe for a pathogen that could be made in a lab by a terror cell or something. I think those are real concerns, um, but those aren't resulting from superintelligence. Those are resulting from human beings using sub-superintelligent AI poorly. One of the things I will give um, the sort of Silicon Valley set credit for as well is that AI is a risk democratizer. So if you think about something like nuclear weapons, they're extremely resource and infrastructure intensive. So it's really only possible that state-level actors could create nuclear weapons. The problem with AI is if a terrorist cell with someone with a bio biology PhD, jailbreaks ChatGPT and gets it to cook up a novel biopathogen, the entry point for civilization or planetary scale attacks or even extinction events, it's much cheaper, it's much more feasible, it democratizes the, the end of the world in a certain way. I think that's a real concern, but that's not a risk arising from Skynet. The energy question is interesting. I, mean, I know Microsoft is building small nuclear reactors to power their AI operations, yep. which will use a lot of energy, obviously. And I guess the pitch here is that, you know, if we crack AI, that'll help us solve the climate change problem, which justifies all the energy it's going to take to use the AI. And I guess I'm okay with that. But what a strange game of chicken. <laughs> we're playing here. Right? Absolutely. It's a huge game of chicken. And that is the gamble, you know, and it's not just climate change. A lot of people say like, look, yes, AI has negative externalities. Yes, it uses tons of water. Yes, it's it costs billions of dollars to train every chat model. Yes, it uh, is very resource intensive. But if we crack super intelligence and if it's aligned, uh, aligned is the word they use to mean, if it's under our control, even as it's smarter than us, um, it'll crack nuclear fission and it'll figure out how to create spaceships that will can travel at light speed and we'll figure out the climate crisis, right? And so it is this game of chicken and egg that we're going to gobble up more and more of the Earth's resources, dedicating them to creating superintelligence. The gamble being that if we create superintelligence, magically all these problems, including some of the problems caused by AI, will disappear in a puff of smoke. One thing that really does terrify me, deep fake technology, mm -hmm. how it is going to keep getting better and better and there's this race between people trying to engineer protections against this so that we know what's fake and what's real. And then there's people on the other side, as there always is, trying to engineer ways to beat those protections and make it nearly impossible to distinguish between real images and real videos and fake ones. And obviously, we're living through the Trump era and all the hysteria over fake news and post-truth and all that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, if you think social media and the internet have already upended our 
political culture, my God, I mean, just buckle up for a world where it is practically impossible to know if what you're seeing is real or not. No one has any idea what to do with that. Yeah, and I think that's another great example of one of these risks that could lead to an existential risk that stems from AI, right? That is short of Skynet superintelligence. If, you know, there's an AI deepfake of President Biden announcing war against Russia, right? You could easily imagine the way in which that could cascade into real geopolitical problems that could cause something like a nuclear exchange or or other kinds of crises. So yeah, I, I do worry about AI. I think it's correct to say AI is an existential risk, but the risks I worry about are these sort of second order problems rather than the matrix. What other second-order problems do you think are worth pointing out? You know, I can be critical of Elon Musk. He is one of these people that's obsessed with extinction. But Elon Musk is one of the few people driving attention to existential risks. These are problems that our government should be trying to address, that our government should have committees and task forces and and whole uh, organizations set up to try to solve. And so my point of view is, if you are listening and you don't like the big tech set and Elon Musk and Sam Altman and OpenAI making decisions about existential risk in our future, They're only doing that because there's been a vacuum created by government abdicating its responsibility to solve big problems. I don't think I'm part of any extinction panics. I don't think I'm an extinction panicker. But I do confess to the belief that our technological growth has reached a point, I think, where it really does threaten our extinction. Absolutely. I I do not think our wisdom has evolved at the pace of our technology. I mean, we are still in so many ways, monkeys with calculators. But, you know, I also easily imagine feeling that exact same way the day after we exploded an atomic bomb in the New Mexico desert, you know, however many years ago that was, right? So it's not new, but it's kind of wild that we're still here, really, given all the ways ways we could have annihilated ourselves. Yeah, Hannah Arendt, the German philosopher, has a great line um, where she's talking about nuclear weapons and computers. And she says, we've reached the point that we can do more than we understand. And she's like, you know, computers can run um, calculations faster than the human mind can fathom, right? Um, And we can create it, but we can't actually understand how it thinks. Or we can split the atom, but there's a way in which we really don't understand what's happening. And so I do think there's something to this idea of we've gotten to a place as a species where we can do a lot more than we can understand, that our ability to affect the world has drastically outpaced our ability to understand it. And I think that's true of climate. I think that's true of AI. I think that's true of a lot of the risks we have to worry about today. Eventually, on a long enough timeline, the doom and gloomers will be right. I mean, yeah. <laughs> nothing nothing lasts, in, including our species. But I think what concerns me, and I know it concerns you as well, are all the ways our fears and cynicism and pessimism might hasten our destruction. And that seems to be something that we really have to fight against. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the examples I use in the New York Times piece is um, in that Churchill essay where he predicts bombs the size of oranges that will level cities. He also predicts um, a drastic hastening of the use of chemical weapons in war, right? World War I was marked by the use of terrible chemical weapons, and Churchill thought that would only increase. And less than a year after he wrote that essay predicting 
a terrible future of chemical war, we passed an international chemical weapons ban. Um, and so I do think while we need to be sober and realistic and recognize that um, a lot of climate change, for example, is already baked in and there's an extent to which even if we stopped emitting now, we're, we have a, a grimmer future locked in already. I think we need to resist panic and I think we need to resist pessimism and we need to be realistic and not Panglossian, but there are ways in which we can meet the challenges uh, and we've met similar, seemingly unthinkable ones in the past. It seems like your basic advice is to worry, but not panic. How would you distinguish one from the other? What is the difference between worrying and panicking? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so I would define panicking as sort of catastrophizing, right? And adopting this fatalistic attitude. I think panic is predicated on certainty, right? The sense that I know what's going to happen. I know it's going to be bad. When the history of science and technology tells us there's a lot of uncertainty, like there was in 1945, so many people were certain that the world was going to end in thermonuclear fire and it didn't. And so I think worry is having a realistic sense of, you know, that there are real challenges for our species and for our civilization. Um, but at the same time, maybe I should invest in a 401k. Um, and maybe if I want children, I th should think about having them um, and not make, uh, you know, sweeping life decisions at the individual level predicated on your certainty that the future is going to look one way or the other. We were talking earlier about elite driven panics. And you make an interesting point in your piece, which is that these things may often be fomented by elites. But we don't have to defer to elites for solutions. I like the sound of that, but what does that mean in practical terms? Yeah, I think we need to start treating extinction as a matter of public policy. I think that means uh, supporting candidates who take climate change seriously, who take AI seriously and call for regulation, who are not constantly pushing us toward proxy wars with nuclear powers. I think all of those things matter. There's a limit to how much we can do as individuals. Um, and, you know, climate change is not a problem primarily caused by individuals failing to recycle. It is a problem caused by gigantic economic, social, and other structures that drive emissions. But even as I don't think we should put the onus on individuals, I do think, um, you know, we have a responsibility to push for more government intervention and government concern about these problems. And I think people like me who are in the media and who write also have a responsibility to start covering and taking existential risks as seriously as they cover other issues. You know, the New York Times, I will say, around the uh, open AI kerfluffle and the extinction panic there did has done really good AI coverage and they've done really good AI coverage that actually talks about and takes some of those um, existential risks seriously. Um, and I think we need more of the that in the media as well. Yeah, and I, I do not think it is great when you look around and notice that so many of these big issues, space travel, AI, even clean energy research, that kind of thing, so much of it is outsourced to billionaires and, and, and private companies for which there's no democratic accountability whatsoever. That does not seem ideal. I don't know what to do about it, but that's not, that's not the way it should be, in my opinion. 
I agree. You know, some people have argued that we need the equivalent of a Manhattan project for AI, just to give you one example, like a robust yeah, yeah. government funded project um, to work on creating AI, but in a way that's safe and responsible. We need a lot more, you know, government infrastructure dedicated to climate change. The danger is when these concerns become polarized um, and become politicized. Obviously, you see that with climate. You see it with AI too, though. So, a thing I hear leftists say a lot when Silicon Valley dudes talk about AI as an existential risk. They say this distracts from the real problems, which is racialized inequality caused by AI systems and AI discrimination and et cetera. And that's not wrong. Those forms of discrimination exist and they matter. But we really need to resist the zero-sum thinking that we can either worry about human-level harms caused by AI and discrimination or we can worry about civilization-scale threats caused by AI, right? And so yeah. the polarization around the AI issue is not nearly as bad as it is with climate, but it's creeping toward it. Well, you conclude in your New York Times piece that you actually feel more optimistic after spending so much time writing about, thinking about extinction panics. Why is that? Yeah, you know, I think the more you learn about the history of our fears about the end of the world, the more you realize that every generation has thought theirs would be the last. And our situation is different today in important material ways, right? We have nuclear weapons. We have the possibility to design novel biopathogens. We have AI that we're developing. So the concerns are different. And then there's, of course, climate change, which is a threat of a magnitude that I think previous generations could scarcely comprehend. So when I say we should look to history and have optimism, I don't at all deny that our situation, our generation's different in really important ways. But at the same time, I would also say that Previous generations were just as certain as ours. And I think the lesson we should draw from history is a little bit of humility about how accurate our predictions about the end of the world tend to be. Tyler Austin Harper, this was great. Thanks for coming in, man. It was a blast. Thanks so much, man. This episode was produced by John Ahrens, edited by Jorge Just engineered by Patrick Boyd, and Alex Overington wrote our theme music. As always, you know I want to hear from you. You can drop us a line at the gray area at box.com and tell me what you thought. And of course, please rate, review, subscribe, all of that good stuff. New episodes of The Gray Area drop on Mondays. Listen and subscribe. The Gray Area is part of Vox, which doesn't have a paywall. Help us keep Vox free by going to vox.com slash give. 